was former president of the United States, George W. Bush. Or is it? Maybe it's just John Morgan, George W. Bush imperpolator. <laughs> but hey, I love On Face Edge with Joe Taylor. This guy rocks. The Bible says next to nothing about the nature of uh, national governments. Um, you have a lot of kings, that kind of thing. But it doesn't talk big government, small government, those kinds of questions. Those questions are not really addressed directly in Scripture. Oh, here we go. Daryl Bach. Daryl Bach, you are about to open up a whole can of worms. Hi, welcome to the 69th episode of On Faith's Edge. My name is Joe Taylor, recovering atheist and your servant in Jesus Christ. This is your place to hear conversations about God and living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Today is October 16th, 2016, a mere 23 days from the presidential election here in the United States. And if you've been following it, wow, wow, it is absolutely crazy. Not an election since, and I've been following since, uh, since I can remember, I've been following politics for a long, long time. And I do not remember an election with this much vitriol, with this much uh, just backbiting and mean-spiritedness, uh, frankly, both sides have some good points against each other. I, uh, I'll keep my own political views uh, to myself. I, uh, I am just concerned about this election and the direction it is taking. 23 days away, back before Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were the Republican and Democratic nominees, I sat down with New York Times best-selling author Daryl Bach, to discuss his new book, How Would Jesus Vote?, where he asks us, do your political views align with the Bible? It's really an intriguing conversation that should cause us to take pause and think about how our faith informs our vote. Daryl is research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. He also serves as professor for spiritual development and culture for the Seminary Center for Christian Leadership. He is the New York Times best-selling author of Breaking the Da Vinci Code. His special fields include the historical Jesus, gospel studies, and the integration of theology and culture. He is a graduate of the University of Texas, Dallas Theological Seminary, and the University of Aberdeen. We are in the throes of the 2016 presidential election. Uh, so it is very appropriate that I ask you on the show because you wrote a new book that is out now called How Would Jesus Vote? The last time I heard a, uh, a title that good, <laughs> it was by um, a gentleman by the name of Joe Battaglia, uh-huh. uh, who wrote a book called The Politically Incorrect Jesus. <laughs> uh, with this election in 2016, uh, politicians from all parties, as well as religious leaders, uh, claim to know, with absolute certainty, I'd say in some cases, where Jesus and where Christianity stands on the most relevant political and cultural topics in the world today. Um, how would Jesus vote? Let's talk about let's talk about that. You wrote this book. Why? Well, I wrote this book because I looked at the political discourse that we're engaged in, which can sometimes hardly be called discourse or conversation, and saw the gridlock and said. How in the world do we deliver ourselves from the kind of tendency to have a fractured society and almost a kind of tribalism that is emerging from from what I'm calling the politics of the flanks? And uh, 
and and then I looked at the Bible and how the Bible approaches many of these issues, and I said, there's something strange going on here because what I see is the left and the right, each when they go for making moral arguments, appealing to the Bible in one way or another, but they're cherry picking both sides. Um, they're introducing us to one theme that the Bible has and oftentimes ignoring another theme that the Bible has that's related to the issue. And that robs us of the discussion that we need to have. We live in a fallen world. The world's not perfect. The world is full of tension. And, that, and, and those issues usually involve making judgments about balancing tensions that exist in the various issues we face. And what our politics is doing is each side is picking one side of that debate and kind of parking there and hardly acknowledging the, the element on the other side that the other side is raising that's a part of the conversation. And so it was an appeal first to work through where our nation came from, the way our nation's set up, because I think some people misunderstand the origins of our country. Uh, and then uh, talking about going through how the Bible would relate to certain issues that we face, going from life back to the Bible, if you will, and then showing where these tensions are and then appealing for a discussion that wrestles with all these principles that have to be in play in order to decide an issue. So we're not telling people how Jesus would vote for a specific candidate as much as he would approach the variety of issues that we see and uh, what needs to be a part of that conversation for it to be a good conversation that we need to have. And then finally, two dimensions of that conversation that we need to pursue are thinking through what makes for the common good and what makes for human flourishing in society. And wrestling with those ideas is a part of the equation, the values that we bring as we wrestle with the application of how to love our neighbor well, a neighbor who may well be very different than me. What are the largest issues right now? We're, we, we know the big political issues or what we think are the big political issues, but what are the issues addressed in this book? Well, the book addresses the issues that you're hearing on the campaign trail, uh, immigration, gun control, health care, wealth and poverty, uh, war and peace, education, particularly education in the context of a con- uh, growing globalized world. They're li- literally uh, uh, sexuality, family, um, right to life and abortion, all these issues are taken on. Racial reconciliation, I mean, it's a full, uh, full, the full list. And what originally motivated me in the book, as I was originally contemplating it was, I was going to put an elephant and a donkey at the top of each chapter, <laughs> and I was going to put a check by one and an X mark by the other. And as we move from topic to topic, what was going to happen in the book is, on some issues, one side would get the check, on the other side, the other side would get the check. But as I actually did the work, it struck me that something actually more profound was going on than simply deciding who was right and who was wrong. And that was this wrestle with the tension within the issues that really is what we're lacking in most of our political discussion, most of our political analysis, and thus we're robbed of really how to sort out and get to solutions that our society, our very diverse society, can function in and live with. There are a few issues that, uh, in my opinion, are, uh, are very important to the faith community. And uh, the majority of our listeners are, are, uh, are Christians, uh, but we have a significant listenership that are not Christians, but are interested in these, uh, in these subjects. Let's start with immigration. Okay, immigration, I think, is one, of the, is one of the issues in which the greatest injustice in the discussion has taken place. Um, biblical principle, a biblical principle is a nation has a right to form its laws to decide what kind of people it's going to be to expect people to follow those laws. 
But the tension is the compassion that's supposed to be shown to the foreigner. The Old Testament is literally packed full of passages, passage after passage, urging compassion on the foreigner. Remember, Israel, you were slaves in Egypt. You should not treat people like you were treated when you were in Egypt, that kind of thing. How do you balance those two things? And then the misinformation on immigration reform, to me, is one of the travesties of our current political discussion. People want to build a wall and, and think that will solve the problem. That doesn't help us deal with the 12 million people who are here. Some people say, we'll deport all the illegals. You're going to break up families, some of whom have been here for multiple decades. Is that a very compassionate way to think about a solution? Isn't there a better way to fix our system and to incorporate those who are already here without it being amnesty? And the answer to that question in the reform immigration reform movement is yes. They are arguing, if you look at the latest bill that was proposed before Congress, that people who are here illegally would pay a fine with time and would pay for the crime, rather, with time and, and a fine and go to the end of a line in order to get assimilated into citizenship. That's not amnesty. Amnesty would simply forgive them and give them a path. So, so here we're balancing two tensions, the right of a nation to expect its laws to be followed and to have its laws honored. Okay, You do that by having people pay a penalty for the immigration uh, for their illegal immigration. But at the same time, you work to assimilate people. You bring that them economically into the system as opposed to being underneath and underground on it. Uh, you figure a way to get them assimilated, etc. Now, what's complicated the immigration discussion more recently in the last uh, 18 months is the additional security concerns that obviously are important to that discussion. That's also a biblical concern as well. And and so you do have to tighten your um, your immigration policy in such a way that those concerns are also answered. But you can see what I'm doing is triangulating tensions or biblical concepts and asking, how do you produce a policy that is holistic, that deals with all of those in some way simultaneously? And there's inevitably a give and take in how that works as opposed to simply parking at one parking spot and ignoring the other features. Now, frankly, the it seems to me that the majority of the Christian community uh, has a stand on immigration that is uh, not as compassionate. I think that's true, and I also think that they're they're blind to mission in the process at the same time. And the Bible does speak clearly about how to treat a foreigner. Yes. Uh, Many, many times. Exactly right, and it also calls us to mission. We're ambassadors for the kingdom Many people who are leaving where they are to come here, are, and this is particularly true of people coming out of the Middle East, are leaving behind the religion of violence that they've lived in. They're leaving everything behind. They're, they're coming only with what they can pack in a suitcase. They're coming to a country where they don't even know the language and culture, and they're willing to risk that to, to land wherever they land, whether it be in Europe or here or wherever they might go. That tells you a lot. That means that they're open to looking for a new way of living. That is a tremendous opportunity for the church to uh, engage people who they would have probably had to spend thousands of dollars to reach those same people if they had stayed where they were. And so uh, that's an a- that's a hidden aspect of this immigration discussion that I think the church often misses. You know, it's interesting, too, because the opportunity uh, uh, firms itself up by understanding that uh, 
the the vast majority of immigration issues come from Mexico, mm-hmm. and the Mexican culture has a strong Catholic uh, strong foundation. Strong family values. Strong family values. Yep. And the Christian community has a chance to build on that. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to talk a little bit later, because uh, there's a few, a couple other subjects, but we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, how to how to separate the what the Christian community should do uh-huh. and the government's role in this issue. Well, you want me to talk issues. about that? Well, I, I think they. I I I do. Okay. I do. But I, I think that we need to t- we need to kind of discuss that in general with all these subjects because there, there's two ways to look at this, Daryl, um, and, and then the third way. Okay. The, the two ways that that are that I look at it uh, are okay. We have the government's role, right? And then we have the church's role, right? Um, they are not the same entity. No. One, there's a way our government was set up. It was set up to be a diver- to be diverse and have a diverse culture. It was very very clear. Now, it was set up at a time in which the Greco-Roman values underneath it drove the pursuit and discussion of religion and virtue in our culture early on. That's changing and has changed. And I don't think there's ever a way to go back because our world is simply too globalized to go back. I like to illustrate it this way. When I went to high school, there were probably three first languages in my high school. When my son went to high school, he graduated in in the early 2000s, there were 179 languages in his high school, first languages. That tells you a lot about who your neighbors are and who's already here and who you have to live with, who your neighbors are, how you have to relate, the worldviews that are wrapped up in that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, So there's no going back. But we were set up to be a diverse nation, and we have a contested public square, which is what politics is all about. Um, so that's the first thing you have to understand that. The second thing is, is that the Bible says next to nothing about the nature of, uh, national governments. Um, you have a lot of Kings, that kind of thing, but it doesn't talk big government, small government, those kinds of questions. Those questions are not really addressed directly in scripture, which means you got an open field in terms of how those entities relate to one another. That's important because many people come to these discussions with the government question being the first lens they apply to the conversation. Uh, third thing is, is that the commitment that God asks Christians to make is to manage the creation well and to think about how you love your neighbor, to represent the gospel in the midst of doing that, and to... Um, and to try and pursue as much as possible, as much common good as you can with someone who's different than you. So uh, in the pursuit of human flourishing. So those are the principles or the values that wrap around any issue that you present. So it's in that context that we have these discussions. So you raise the question of government and church being different entities. They are very different entities, which means you have to understand the limitation of what politics can do on the one hand, what it can and can't do. I tell people, if you want to see what good laws look like with people without hearts, read your Old Testament. That's why we got the new covenant. Okay. (laughs) All right. So good laws by themselves won't do it. Politics can't do everything. That's why the mission of the church is so important. But the mission of the church is reinforced by how we engage in society, the care and compassion that we show when we talk about God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How do we actually show that to people in the way that we live? This is a holistic view that we're talking about. 
And then alongside of it, the question, the realistic question is, can the church do everything that's needed in terms of human needs that is out there? I think the answer to that question is no. Most governments in the world that operate with a population do something to help their population that's struggling and is in need and works, reaches out to the marginalized, et cetera. So I think that is a role of government. The question is, what can you do and what can you afford? How would Jesus vote? And this is all wrapped around that question. Yes. When it comes to the subject of abortion. Great question. And it's different than most of the issues that we're talking about. Because in this particular case, the Bible is especially clear about, uh, about the protection of life, about the sacredness of life. That's the core value. And there's, I don't think there's any biblical debate about the fact that abortion is wrong morally and biblically. So it's not like the whole host of other issues that were, that were mentioned. But then the question becomes, how do you practically, in our political system with the different worldviews, deal with that reality? Well, you can go for an all-or-nothing policy in which you try and rule out every single solitary abortion. That's what we've been trying to do for the last 30 years. And look where that's gotten us. Short answer is, not very far. Or you can talk about... Um, Virtually all the medical evidence says and defines life as beginning at some time very early on in a pregnancy. Um, Christians believe it happens immediately, okay? Uh, but most people have it somewhere very early. Most of our laws today allow abortions far after that time point. Why not scale? Why don't move to try and scale back what we do in a broad basis back? closer to the points of where the consensus on the science is and then go from there in terms of the rest of the discussion. That would be how I would have a Christian think about abortion. Yeah, you make a good point. Start where there's common ground. Mm -hmm. Start where there's common ground. One point that uh, you hear about the abortion issue is what about the mother? Mm -hmm. Where is your compassion for the mother? Mm -hmm. Uh, What can the church do uh, and what would Jesus expect the church to do, the men and women of faith, uh, when it comes to the And mother? especially if you're dealing with an unwanted child in one way or another. Is it, is it out of a, uh, a broken family situation? Is it, was it a casual relationship, et cetera, where the mother may not want the child? Very, I mean, most of the push in, in aborting children is because of those kinds of circumstances. Maybe you have a very, very young mother who, you know, 14 or 15 years old, that kind of thing. Uh, what I argue for in the book is that there are lots of people around who want children who can't have children. Why not ask the mother to bear the burden of bearing the child? It's a, it is a sacrifice from the standpoint of liberty, the way we normally talk about it. But then make it easier for people to adopt those children and take care of them from that point on. You don't have an abortion then. The child comes into the world. There's, no, there, there, there's nothing morally improper about that way of care, and you've, you've lessened the amount of abortions that you have. And I think we ought to make it um, easy for those kinds of adoptions to take place and for those kinds of families who want children to be able to care for one. Good point. Now, this is an interesting subject that you cover in the book that, that doesn't seem on the surface to be a biblical issue. Mm-hmm. And that's gun control. Absolutely. In fact, that's where the chapter begins. How can you talk about guns? There were no guns in the Bible. It's a good. So what you do is you ask yourself a couple of questions. What does the Bible say about the right of self-defense on the one hand? And what does the Bible say about the use of violence 
and violence and self-defense on the other. There actually are biblical guidelines. It's interesting. If someone robbed you at night in the Old Testament and you kill them in defense of your, of your property, okay, there's no fine. It's not viewed as murder. But if you kill them during the day, then the circumstances come into play, and you may well pay a fine depending on the nature of the circumstances. So that shows you the principle. On the one hand, you have the right to protect life, limb, property, those kinds of things. But on the other, um, you aren't supposed to be indiscriminate in your use of violence. What does that mean when you apply it to guns? Well, I think it raises the question of, and, and this is a political and social decision we've made. Other countries do different things. We've made the decision here that people have the right to bear arms. We could discuss that morally or not, but it's neither here nor there because there's so many arms in the United States. That's not a debate anyone's going to have. The Second Amendment exists. People are going to live by it. So then the question becomes, so how do you regulate your arms in such a way that's responsible, that people use it responsibly? I like to use the analogy of to ask people for background checks or to see if they're qualified to use their guns, if they're mentally capable. That's no different than asking someone to get a driver's license in order to drive a car because you realize that with the responsibility, there comes a risk and a danger because of the nature of of what's being used. So I don't see it as an assault on the Second Amendment. And I don't think biblically it would be viewed as an assault on the Second Amendment. Of course, the Second Amendment isn't even in the Bible. Um, uh, to ask people for good background checks, to make sure that people who buy guns, even at gun shows, are not immune from those checks, to ask that people have a good psychological background in order to be able to bear an arm so they can do so responsibly, those kinds of things that aren't about whether or not I own a gun, but but whether I am, if you could say, qualified to own a gun. And then the second discussion that's a little more controversial is what size of weaponry should we allow? You know, does, does everyone need, you know, an AK weapon of one kind or another? Does that, or, or, or is that something that should be regulated? I think those are public square discussions about what we as a society are comfortable about in terms of the bearing of arms. Now, the response on all this is, well, a criminal is going to try and violate the law. If they want a gun, they can get one. Very, very true. It's a very, very fair point. But you're also trying to create laws that deal with things like instinct killings or killings that come out of depression or suicides or those kinds of things. So creating a system that can get in the way of impulse killings and those kinds of things, it seems to me, is something that is a responsible step when it comes to thinking about gun control. So my point is, is that these conversations have many levels to them that we have to pay attention to in order to have a really thought through moral policy. And so, and we deserve those discussions, not a simple one-size-fits-all slogan kind of campaigning about the issues that actually um, obscures us from the levels that these conversations deserve to have. We need a different kind of dialogue. Uh, a person has the right to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. But you're right. They, ha- they have the right to defend themselves, but, it, but they, it's not indiscriminate. That's right. And that's, I think that's very clear, especially in the Old Testament. Um, uh, but when it comes to the Second Amendment, it, this may not be so much of a biblical issue as it is a uh, a thirty second commentary. Okay, yeah, okay. so grant me okay. some grace here. Brother. Okay, okay, all right. <clears throat> it seems to me that the that the Second Amendment is less about the right for a person to defend themselves and more about the right for a person to defend themselves against a tyrannical government. 
So having said that, should we have the right to defend ourselves against a government that, that ha- shouldn't we have the right to defend ourselves against a, a tyrannical government in the same way that the tyrannical government could oppress us? I think the answer to that question is yes, that we would have that right. I also think, notice the distrust that that represents, uh, uh, which is not healthy for our society in the long run. Um, and so uh, I'm not sure uh, America qualifies in terms of the level of tyranny to merit that level of distrust, although I understand why it exists. I mean, that's why they fought against the British and you know didn't want to have a king. But, but think about it the other way, too. Are you really at a militia level, at a popular militia level, going to be able to stop a government that spends trillions of dollars on defense if it really wanted to apply itself? Right. Get real. Very good point. So let's talk about racial conflict. Another different issue than the ones we've talked about. I've said some have tension, some the Bible is clear. Here's one where everyone agrees on what the goal is. Okay, I don't know too many people who argue against the idea of racial reconciliation. Okay, I I haven't, I haven't. I mean, you've got to be, you know, just an out and out racist to be right. arguing that. So, so everyone's agreed here on what the, what the what the goal is. No one has any idea how to get there, um, and so the our, these cultures are so different from one another that what they require is a kind of engagement we've passed all kinds of laws to try and make racial reconciliation work we've just passed discriminatory laws and all kinds of other things to try and deal with what we think are potential for for injustice otherwise so we've made all the right legislative moves this is actually the illustration of one of the core points the book makes but if our hearts aren't right And if we really don't pursue what we believe in, we don't get there, which means sitting down, listening, engaging, uh, learning to hear what the other side is trying to say and and sharing and incorporating those concerns into our conversations as much as as is possible in a corporate way. In fact, one of the things that's consistently happening with all the issues that we're talking about is we're asking people not to think of their own self-interests. Okay, which produces tribalism, but to think about what it means to care for their neighbor and to engage with their neighbor. When you turn the arrow outward, you have a better chance for a more healthy society. The book is How Would Jesus Vote by Daryl L. Bach. And uh, Daryl, I really look forward to digging deeper into this book. I think you, you, you address issues that are thought-provoking, uh, that will create a dialogue, and is much needed in the Christian community right now. Yeah, I think it's not only needed in the Christian community, it's just needed in our society at large. We need, we need to be a do, do a better job of listening to one another. Daryl, can we talk a little bit about your faith? Absolutely. You're a Christian. Yes. How did you come to believe in Jesus Christ? didn't grow up in a Christian home. In fact, my family came out of a Jewish background, but I didn't know I was Jewish until I was 13 years old. My parents left Judaism right before I was born, told their families that they were leaving and lost all connection with family as a result. Uh, we grew up in a, uh, I grew up in a, in a, I would say a moderate Christian environment, but never really heard the gospel growing up. Uh, we stopped going to church when I was about eight years old, when my mom got cancer and had to go through a series of surgeries, etc., that really left her in and out of the hospital the next um, six years of my life. 
she passed away when I was 14. I didn't have any faith whatsoever. I would have described myself as either a skeptic or an agnostic. Um, I had a lot of Southern Baptist friends who witnessed to me regularly starting, uh, starting really in eighth grade. Uh, I had a close friend who came to the Lord at a young life camp who, whose uh, evangelistic message was basically a three-word sentence. You need Jesus. He could say it three ways. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. That's about all he could say. I thought he was absolutely crazy. And uh, people shared with me all the way through high school. I was enough of an agnostic when I went to college that this is the prayer I prayed. Okay, you'll put this together when this is all done. I was so desperate trying to figure out who my roommate was going to be because I was getting what was called a potluck roommate. The school was going to select a roommate. And so that's a little bit like getting married without an engagement for yep, a time. Yep. So, uh, so I prayed this prayer. God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do, isn't that a great beginning to a prayer? Sure. Please give me anybody but a Bible-carrying Southern Baptist as a roommate <laughs> because I want to enjoy my college years. Amen. <laughs> that was the prayer, uh, word for word. So basically <laughs> said, God, I'm not sure you're there, but if you're there, Make sure I don't have one of your people here. Exactly with me. right. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. Not only that, but but you know, I, and my reason for doing so is That's I want to get everything Darryl. out of college. College has to offer, good and bad. So, um, so when I got to SMU, which is where my freshman year was, I, my remaining years were at the University of Texas at Austin. I walk into Bose Hall, my room, three thirty-five East. I open the door. There's a big trunk there. Every college student's life was cut. My roommate. His trunk was already there. He wasn't in the room. And the first thing I see on top of the trunk is a leather-bound Bible. I knew God had answered my prayer. Yeah. Guess who my roommate was? Doug Mickey from the First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, God answered my prayer. Uh, And he answered it with a no. And we became very, very good friends, interacted. He couldn't answer all my questions, but he gathered friends around it. He just loved me. He, He... showed the compassion of the gospel, as my other friends had done, who I'd seen previously. And eventually that drew me into the gospel so that by the end of my freshman year, I came to the Lord. So that's how I came to the Lord. Fantastic. So you came to, um, uh, you came to believe in Jesus Christ as an adult. That's right. For all intents and purposes. And thought very much through it in the way of making decision. Right. Very thoughtful, probably That's very right. reasonable That's right. decision. Right. Um, so since, since coming to Christ uh, and believing in Jesus Christ, have you ever had a time where you doubted your faith or even the existence of God? Not really, because, because the whole journey into faith had pulled me out of that. And so, uh, so it was never something I revisited. Um, and the reason I didn't revisit it is because what I found on the other side was substantive. And as a result, uh, there was no need to revisit. Now, every now and then, God and I might have conversations about the management <laughs> of life and that kind of thing, you know, where he takes you and how he takes you there. Um, you know, so there, I mean, so there, there's, there's, there's lament and conversation in that, but there's no doubt about God's existence or that he's there or that he works in people's lives. And in the midst of having been in ministry, I hear far too many stories of people who've had experiences. And the only way that you can explain it is that God is at work. Finally, as, as we wrap up, Daryl, uh, what would you say to that person that is right on faith's edge, about to make that choice to believe or not to believe in God? You might think you're on the edge of a cliff, 
but you're actually on the beginning of a ladder. So take that next step, and what you'll find is you don't go up, or you don't go down, you go up. Faith is not a risk. It actually is the first step into real life. I don't think we can say anything more than that, Daryl. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. I really My appreciate pleasure. it. Uh, I appreciate this book, How Would Jesus Vote? I appreciate your the way you look at things. God bless you, brother. Thank you, Joe. Pleasure to be here. How Would Jesus Vote is available at Amazon.com. And of course, all of today's links can be found in the in today's show notes at onfaithsedge.com slash 69. That's onfaithsedge.com slash 69. Well, that'll wrap up today's show. Thank you to Daryl Bach for being with us today. And thank you for listening. Remember, go out and vote. Vote your conscience. Vote your faith. But vote. Thank you for listening. You mean a lot to me. You mean a lot to this show. Remember, God is real. He loves you. And so do I. God bless. Thank you for listening to On Faith's Edge. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher Internet Radio, or your favorite podcast app on Android, Apple, or Windows devices. To reach out to Joe or leave comments about the show, visit onfaithsedge.com. You're important to us, and we would love to hear from you. 